The scripture for today is from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Good morning. I wonder if... Many of you, I think of kids, I think of people who maybe grew up in the church or, I I don't know, maybe you're not even sure why you're here. (laughs) I wonder how many of you hear things that we sing, Bible verses that we read, things I'm about to say in the sermon, and just don't make a lot of sense. They're just sort of confusing and sound like you know, some language you would never use during the week on your own, crown him with many crowns. When is the last time you thought in those terms anywhere ever outside of the few minutes we just sang that? So I want to tell you two reasons why that might sound, the things you hear this morning might sound confusing to you. First is that we might be saying things that aren't true. (laughs) We might be saying them confusingly. We might be saying things that are off. We try really hard We are adamant at grace, probably more than most places you'll go to not do that. So we hope that's not really part of the problem this morning. The second, and I imagine the main problem, is that to hear the things that you'll hear here requires spiritual ears. And you cannot get those on your own. They're not native to you. You're born without those. And so it takes a work of God to give you the kinds of ears that can hear the things you're hearing, and for them not only to make sense, but to fill you with awe and wonder, or conviction over sin, or a longing to throw yourself before God for mercy. And so would you take a minute right now and pray and ask God for those ears? If you've never heard like that before, it probably means you're not a Christian, and the Lord will give you those ears if you seek them. He promises that. And for those of you who are Christians, who maybe are caught up in things and you've just spent so much time this week in other stuff, distracted or discouraged or believing lies, you need need greater hearing this morning and the Lord will give that to you as well. So please, all of you now by yourselves, just take a minute as I work my way into the introduction and ask the Lord to give you ears to hear. And then second, second practical Uh, application. 
stick around for a little bit afterwards and talk to somebody about that. If you don't even know what that means, what I just said, ask somebody. If you're, if, if you're a Christian and you've just been struggling to hear the sweetness of the glory of the Lord, stick around and talk about that rather than the game. All right. Well, with that, if you knew you only had 24 hours to live, let's get morbid quick. What would you want to say and who would you want to hear it? 24 hours. Let's say you're in reasonably good health. You're not, you know, uh, until you wouldn't be. That's, it's even more morbid. That's not in the manuscript. Uh, well, is there anything you would want to say and is there anyone you would want to hear it? That is, if, is there anything you would definitely want to share with someone before you die? Presumably something you haven't said already or in a way that you haven't yet said it. Last words. Any of you have ever heard them? Uh, none of you have spoken them, I guess, but if any of you have ever heard them, uh, have a particular weight to them, especially with those whom we've shared our lives with. John 13, 31 begins what is often called the farewell discourse. That's what we are, where we are this morning. It contains the first of the final words of Jesus that he spoke to his disciples. And it continues on all the way through chapter 17, four and a half chapters of Jesus' final words. He chose to share them with the men he was closest to and who were most responsible to carry on his ministry and mission after he was gone. To be clear, Jesus took the final hours of his life. It's in the evening of Thursday and Jesus would be arrested shortly. Judas had already gone out to set that up. He would be tried through a series of sham trials, which we'll see in John's Gospel. And then the next day he would be crucified. But these are the final hours of his life, and he took it to sh- took them to share a number of important things with his disciples. Uh, throughout the next four and a half chapters in this gospel, the, a few of the disciples chime in a few times, but they only do so with really brief questions to help make sense of what Jesus had just said or to introduce what he was about to say. It's mostly a monologue from Jesus. Throughout the final monologue, Jesus teaches, he predicts, he promises, he warns, and he prays. And in all of that are truly, and I'm not just saying this, if you are here through this or have read it on your own or will read it on your own, you probably can attest to the fact that these are some of the most moving and significant words, certainly in John's gospel and also in the whole Bible. We would do well to listen carefully to them, to read them carefully, to read them prayerfully. Is there anything sweeter than the high priestly prayer we're about to come to? Regarding our passage for this morning, then, three main ideas. If you hear three things, hear these three things. The Father and Son would be glorified in awesome ways. That's number one. Two, through the Son's departure and what that means. And third, and so Jesus gave them a new commandment to guide them through his glorification and through his departure. So what do we do with that? Above all, three things, see and savor the glory of the Godhead. I'm going to give you some crowns this morning, or rather, John is going to give us some crowns with which we can crown him, some of the many. So number one, see and savor the glory of the Godhead through this passage. Praise him this week through the things you see this week, this morning. Second, grow in a holy longing to follow Jesus in all of his ways. 
Second, grow in a holy longing to follow Jesus in all of his ways. And third, love others as you have been loved by Jesus. Father and Son would be glorified in awesome ways through the Son's departure. And so Jesus gave them a new commandment to guide them. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the staggering measures of glory that is in this. I pray that you would give all of us ears to hear for those who have never heard, who have never trembled at your glory, at your holiness, and at their sin in light of that. Would you give them ears to hear these things this morning that they might? Let them see you high and lifted up in this text. Let them see their own sinfulness and unworthiness. That Let them see that they have sinned against you and feel the weight of those sins, namely the death that they deserve. But also help them to hear the words of life, the glory of grace that is dripping off of these verses the offer that is for all, that there is no one who could have done something so bad or was run so far away from you that you cannot rescue them right now immediately if they would turn to you in faith, as Matt shared with us in the exhortation. And for those in this room who are hoping in you, who who have received the gospel in faith, but have been carried away this week or even maybe this morning, the cares of this world or thoughts that are unhelpful and untrue and even sinful. I pray that you would give ears to hear the hope and the life, the joy and the gladness, the everlasting glory. Things with which whatever is distracting them cannot compare. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Father and the Son, according to this passage, would be glorified in awesome ways through the Son's departure. And so Jesus gave the disciples to whom he was speaking a new commandment. Each of those truths by themselves are awesome beyond measure. If you don't already know that yet, and if you are not yet convinced of that by the end of this service, please stick around and ask. He he built this pastor guy standing up front, talked about these things like they were going to be the greatest thing ever, but I didn't hear that. Help me to understand why he would talk that way. Ask somebody that question. Each of each of these, there has been written countless volumes, or on each of these, countless volumes have been written because of the glory that is in them. And each has led men and women to give their very lives to take this good news to the world. And each will get about 15 minutes this morning. So hang on. I say that only to remind you the fact that God's word is depths in it that we need eternity. We'll need eternity to plumb. There are glories in this passage. There are glories in John's gospel. John tells us this at the end. If you were to write of all the glories of Jesus, it would fill more books than the whole earth could contain. And so I say this to say, no matter how many sermons I gave on this, I could never capture it all. And so I hope this inspires you at least to press at least a little deeper in at least one of these three main truths this week. And so with that, let's begin by taking a closer look at the now glorification of the Son and the Father. Many of you know the first question of the shorter Westminster Confession. I wonder how many of you know the slightly modified longer version. They're very similar. But what is the chief and highest end of man? What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end. The reason that you and I were made. What is our ultimate goal in life according to God's design for us, the one who created us? 
Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. That's better than the shorter one. The question and answer, though, presuppose something really important. Did you pick up on that? Let me, let me say it again. Here's the question. Here's the answer. It presupposes something that we all need to get our heads around. What is the chief and highest end of man? What's your purpose in life? Why do you exist? Answer, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. The, pre, the, 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 the question and answer presuppose that God is glorious in such a way that it is possible to enjoy him fully forever. Getting your head around how significant of an idea that is, is necessary to really appreciate our opening, the opening lines of our text. So let me ask you, and I want you to answer honestly to yourself, and especially for all those of you for whom there has never not been smartphones. Double negative, a little tricky. For those of you who there has never not been smartphones, if you grew up your whole life and smartphones were a thing, truthfully, when is the last time you would say something held your full enjoyment for more than a few minutes? Think about it for a second. Let alone for a whole day, let alone for a whole week, let alone for a whole year, let alone for a whole decade, let alone for forever. It takes something truly extraordinary to capture our full attention for any amount of time. And so the idea of something being so glorious, so remarkable, that it is able to do it fully forever is almost unfathomable. And of course, no ordinary thing could do that. And of course, as Jesus makes clear in the opening lines of our passage, neither he nor his father are anything ordinary. They are, along with the Spirit, infinitely glorious and therefore entirely able to fuel full joy forever. I hope that makes sense to all of you. It's a big promise. Let's, let's see if we can deliver. That sounds fine in theory, right? Okay, great. There's something out there that is able to, uh, uh, that is so glorious that people could fully enjoy it forever. That's pretty staggering, but sounds okay in theory. What does it really mean? And the question that you need to ask then is what is the content of that glory? Sounds okay. Sounds good. Kind of hope it's true. But what's the content of that glory? What is it about the Father and the Son, according to this passage, that make them glorious to the point that they can sustain complete joy in you forever? And to that end, John wrote verse 31 and 32. When he had gone out, that is when Jesus went, or when Judas had gone out, Jesus told Judas, you're going to betray me, go do it. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said to the remaining 11, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's a lot of glory, right? Five glories. And within that, there are three main claims. Jesus will be glorified now. God the Father would be glorified in Jesus' glory. And then God the Father would turn that glory into glory for Jesus. Let's consider each of those things. Jesus would be glorified now. God the Father would be glorified in Jesus' glory, and then God the Father would turn that back to more glory for Jesus. Again, Jesus said, now the Son of Man, he himself, would be glorified. In these words, Jesus was echoing a claim he had just said in a little bit different way. 
a few verses earlier. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So, so now the Son of Man is glorified is the same thing in meaning as the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he'll say it again at the end of this discourse in chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. The first question these claims present is what Jesus meant by now. And the hour has come. What hour? What's now? What does he mean by that? What did he have in mind? When did he have in mind? And the answer, as we'll see more clearly as we make our way through this text, is the hour of the cross, resurrection, and the ascension. In simplest terms, then, Jesus was explaining that the time for him to be crucified was at hand. And in the cross, his glory would be put on display in a way that the world had never seen. Grace Church, you've heard this. If you've been here for a while, if you grew up in the church, you've heard this. You've heard it over and over. And so there's this tendency, at least in me, maybe I'm projecting onto you, to be quick to move past this, believing I've heard this, I understand this. And you have, and you probably do. And yet, once again, there are layers to this that you will spend eternity pulling back and it can't get any, it gets better. It can't, it got better again. You will continue to pull back layers of glory here. So don't, don't be quick to think, I've heard this. I know where where this is going. I've got this. Ask the Lord to give you ears to hear and deeper levels still. You and I really will spend all of eternity growing in our sense of awe and wonder at the glory that Jesus put on display at the cross. So let's, let's get at it. Let's get at it now. There are a lot of ways the cross displays the glory of Jesus. I'm going to give you four right now. Number one, the cross is the place in which Jesus willingly absorbed the full measure of the wrath of God for the sins of the world. He did at once what millions of animals and millions of gallons of their blood could not do. Ephesians 2 says Jesus reconciled us to God through the cross. Colossians 1 says God reconciled to himself all things, all sinful and rebellious things, all corrupted things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace with them by the blood of Jesus, which he spilled on the cross. Hebrews 9.26 says, He, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Above all, grace, the cross signifies and the cross glorifies Jesus in that it is the place in which he died for the sins of the world. I'm going to come back to this from another angle in this text in just a minute. We are right to marvel here at the glory displayed in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross on behalf of sinners. That's a crown with which to crown him. Second, Jesus was glorified in the cross in that it was the place where he defeated Satan and all of the enemies of God. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, there's been a battle between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the devil. The devil and his allies have declared war against God and his people. Even now, they are constantly prowling around, the word of God tells us, seeking some to devour. At the cross, Jesus was glorified by exercising, finally, his infinitely superior infinite superiority over every evil being that had and would come up against the rule of God. 
of that Colossians 2 says that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Similarly, in Hebrews 2, we read, through death, through death, through his death, he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil. At the cross, Jesus secured perfect and eternal victory and perfect and eternal defeat for the evil one and all that are with him. And in that, he was glorified with a glory that can truly satisfy us forever. Third, the cross was the place in which Jesus defeated death. At the cross, Jesus defeated sin, he defeated the devil, and he defeated death itself. And in each, his glory was put on display for the heavens and the earth. Anticipating and promising this, this is, write this down, Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth at the cross. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote of this certain, eventual, and eternal effect of what Jesus gloriously accomplished on the cross. Then comes the end when the resurrected and ascended Jesus delivers the kingdom of God the Father to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death, made certain at the cross. Acts 2.24 records Peter's declaration, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not hold Jesus because by his death, he killed death. If you've been here at Grace, you know we celebrate Easter. We call it, we call it death's funeral. What an awesome reality and staggering display of his glory. The eternally satisfying kind of glory that was about to be revealed. Fourth and finally, Jesus was glorified in the cross and that upon his death on the cross, Jesus finished his earthly obedience all the way. We'll see this more explicitly in chapter 17 where John recorded Jesus' Prayer, I have glorified you. He's praying to the Father. I have glorified you, Father. How? By having accomplished all the work that you gave me to do on earth. Paul explained in Philippians 2.8 that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was always going to be grace because of Jesus' perfect right- righteousness his utter sinlessness, his immaculate holiness, his complete obedience, that he would be an acceptable sacrifice to God for the sins of the world. At the cross, Jesus crossed the finish line of obedience, and therein was glorified in the highest. We need to, if you have ears to hear, marvel at the amazing glory of the one who endured every temptation that you and I have experienced Every temptation known to mankind was put in front of him, even by the evil one. Yet he did not sin. He never, grace, ever once had a sinful inclination or thought, much less action. What's more, his every desire, his every contemplation and every deed were only righteous always. Not once did Jesus do anything prohibited by the Father or neglect anything required by him. He obeyed all the way to the end, and that is glorious beyond measure. It is our salvation. And that glory was shown in the cross. And the cross, Jesus says, is now. 
In anticipation of his crucifixion mere hours away, Jesus told his disciples that through it, that is through the cross, now is the Son of Man glorified. Right there's plenty of glory to satisfy you fully forever, but there's more. More than that, Jesus continued on promising, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. That's also the next part of Jesus' prayer in chapter 17 that we read earlier. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, but he goes on, that the Son may glorify you. Not only was Jesus glorified in the cross, but the Father was glorified in Jesus' glory. There's a way in which every parent can relate to this. When our kids do well at something, it is often as much to our great pleasure and glory as it is to theirs. You know, you know what I mean, right, parents? In a way that, that is similar, yet immeasurably greater, the Father was glorified in the Son's glory on the cross. Indeed, Jesus declared that the Father's glory in the cross was his aim all along, even above our salvation, grace, even above saving us from our sins. Jesus' aim all along was to glorify the Father. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. I've come to the cross for this purpose, above all. You might expect it to say, for the salvation of the world. That's not what it says. Jesus says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What is it? Father, glorify your name. Just as is the case in the cross glory of Jesus, the cross glory of the Father shows up in many and particular ways as well. I give you four again. I give you four aspects in which Jesus was glorified on the cross, four aspects now in which the Father was glorified in Jesus' glory. Number one, God's perfect righteousness was displayed in the cross. This is critical. God declared from the beginning, grace, that sin always leads to death. That's bad news. What's worse is that all have sinned. He told us that from the beginning as well. In Adam's fall, corruption and sin entered all mankind. Now here's what that leaves us with. I need you to, I need you to feel this. What that leads us with is one of two things. Either universal death or injustice in God. Those are the only possibilities given that equation. Since all sinned and all sin leads to death, all sinned and all sin leads to death, all must die or God must go back on his word. You feel that? Unless some sufficient substitute sacrifice was to be found. God offered his own son as that sufficient substitute sacrifice at the cross because his perfect righteousness would not allow sin to go unpunished or it would not allow him to go back on his word. What awesome, amazing, eternally satisfying glory that is. That's a crown with which to crown him. was about to be revealed in the cross. Second, God's perfect love was displayed in the cross. The fact that God would have been perfectly just in putting to death all who treasonously rebelled against him, but chose to offer his own son as a propitiation instead, is the greatest display of love of all time. That glorious truth is at the heart of the most famous passage in John. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Did you ever think about what that means? At the cross. 
Where did he give his son? He gave his son at the cross that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I invite you to slow down this week and consider the unending, perfectly satisfying nature of the glory of God displayed in his love at the cross. Third, God's perfect patience was displayed in the cross. This is a big deal as well, and especially to Paul. Since Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, no one's saved, no one's reconciled, no one can have fellowship with God, no one goes to heaven when they die, but by him. We're almost to that in John 14. Since salvation, grace, is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, did you ever wonder what happened to people before Jesus came on the earth? If it's all in Christ and through Christ in his resurrection, his death and his resurrection, what did that mean for everybody before Christ? The answer is found in passages like Acts 17 and Romans 3. Acts 17, this is Paul saying this, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now, that is, since the cross, he commands all people everywhere to believe or to repent. Romans 3.25, God put Jesus forward at the cross as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, which we just saw, because, and here's the key, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The heart of these two passages, and there are others like it, is that God had patiently stored his righteous wrath for millennia, both for the faithful and the faithless, knowing that he would one day send his son to atone for all who had or would hope in him. The glory of the perfect patience of God is revealed in the cross. He patiently allowed his name to be profaned and his glory to be mocked across generations because of the cross. And finally, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him in displaying his perfect patience at the cross. Fourth, God's perfect integrity is displayed in the cross. What Jesus did on the cross is what made made it possible for God to keep all of his promises and remain perfectly true to his nature. And in that is eternal glory. The cross is the fulfillment of God's first gospel promise. It was on the cross that Jesus bruised his heel on Satan's head. The cross was the fulfillment of God's prophecy as well. Deuteronomy 22, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, you'll hang him on a tree for a hanged man is cursed by God. And the cross is where God was able to be both just and justifier. In these four things, we find once again some of the content of the glory of God revealed in Jesus on the cross that is able to satisfy us forever and ever fully. All right, so number number one is that Jesus would be glorified in the cross. Number two is that God would be glorified in Jesus' glory on the cross. And number three is that God will glorify Jesus in his glory. That's 32. In the cross, Jesus was glorified. In Jesus' glory, the Father was glorified, and in the Father's glory, the Son would be glorified all the more. If God is glorified in him, verse 32, God will also glorify him in in himself and glorify him at once. The cross is the vortex of the infinite cycle of Trinitarian glory. That's a good sentence. (laughs) I looked up a couple of those words, and I think they're all right. 
The cross is the vortex of the infinite cycle of Trinitarian glory. That's what Paul was getting at in Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was glorified in the cross, and so God glorified, that is, highly exalted him even more. It's also the heart of John seventeen three which again we'll come to in a couple weeks. I glorified you on earth, Jesus said, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus was glorified on the cross. That cross brought glory to God the Father. And so God turned back that glory on Jesus. And in all of this, we see that the cross is the supreme place the place of supreme convergence of Jesus' sufficiency, his victory, and his obedience. It is also the place of supreme convergence of the attributes of God the Father. And in those things, we find a good deal of the content of the glory that will allow everyone who hopes in Jesus to fulfill his chief end. That leads to the second major section. Father and Son would be glorified through the Son's departure. We see this explicitly in verses 33 and then again in 36 to 38. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, Jesus said to his disciples. You will seek me after I'm no longer with you. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I go, you cannot come. Jesus was about to depart from the earth by the way of the cross. The cross, of course, would soon lead to the empty tomb, and then the empty tomb would lead to his ascension back to the Father. And when those things happened, the disciples and the Jews would seek Jesus for all kinds of different right and wrong reasons, but they would not be able to find him. Confused by this, Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you, Peter, will follow me afterward. There's a sense in which grace, no one could follow Jesus and what he was about to do. He alone could die on the cross for the sins of the world. He alone could be raised from the dead in the fulfillment of the scriptures. And he alone would rise to the Father's right hand to rule and make intercession for all his people. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. He alone could do those things. And yet there is another sense in which all who would be saved would follow him in all of these things. Grace, we must all take up our cross, laying our lives down in faith in the Son of God. And all who do will, with Jesus, be raised from the dead. Jesus was indeed the firstborn among many resurrected brothers and sisters. And all who will come into the presence of God, all all who do, all who hope in Jesus, will come into the presence of God to reign as co-heirs with Jesus, which is what he meant by, but you will follow afterward. Again, no one could follow Jesus immediately, but the good news of the gospel is that all who would trust in Jesus would do so after. Still confused, of course, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. 
in that Peter displayed a familiar zeal mixed with an equally familiar ignorance. Not only could Peter not follow Jesus to the end, but he would not even follow him as far as he could. Instead of following, he would first deny. Jesus needed to lay his life down for Peter before Peter could lay his life down for Jesus. The cross was the vortex of Trinitarian glory, and no one could follow Jesus into that until he went through it so that everyone could follow. And that leads to the third and final key to this passage, and it answers a question that I hope you're already asking. If they could not follow Jesus now, what were they to do? If they could not follow him in this now, what were they to do now? Jesus answered that question directly in verses 34 and 35. You can't follow me now, but I'll tell you what you can do. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. We have a Maundy Thursday service, and it comes from this verse right here. Maundy means commandment, and it's this new commandment that we're celebrating. God had commanded his people to love one another for hundreds of years. The new aspect of the command was not, therefore, that they used to not, they used to not supposed to, they, they were not supposed to love each other in the past, and now they were supposed to love each other. That's not the new part of the commandment. The new aspect was in the final clause, just as I have loved you. The, never before had love for others been so perfectly modeled as it was in Jesus. The foundation of this new commandment, then, is the nature of the love with which we are to love others. Jesus' love. This new commandment is for you and I to love one another and others just like Jesus did. But what does that look like specifically? How do we love others like Jesus loved us? I want to close with three suggestions. Number one, Love one another to the end. These are good to write down if you, if you, even if you're not in the habit of that. This is a good way to spend your week. Love one another to the end. In, in chapter 13, verse 1, we were there a few weeks ago. We read, having loved his own, Jesus having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I've noticed, Grace, I hope you hear this. I've noticed an almost universal phenomenon among Christians in our various relationships. I want you to test this, and maybe you can come up afterwards and tell me the exception, but it's almost universal. I see it in friendships. I see it in marriages. I see it in families, and I see it in Grace Church, in our church. When the relationship begins, we see mainly the good and gladly accept the shortcomings. It's it's as if almost all we can see is good stuff, especially if you came from something that seems comparably worse. Over time, however, the pendulum often swings, and sometimes entirely in the other direction. We begin to see mainly the shortcomings, which seem bigger than we ever had realized before, and we minimize the good, which seem to grow smaller than they ever were in the past. The practical result is almost always frustration and discouragement and complaining, and if unchecked, eventually to the end of the relationship. This is not grace, a charge. Loving like Jesus does not mean minimizing the sins of others. But if we are to obey Jesus, Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved us, we'll do two things. Number one, 
we will focus. We will commit ourselves to focusing on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise in others. That's Philippians 4. And then second, we will lay our lives down to help others turn from everything else. You with me, Grace? If you are to love others like Jesus loved, we love to the end. And that means focusing in them, fighting continually to focus on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. And second, for laying our lives down to help them turn from everything that isn't those things, from all their sin. We fight with them against their sin, not with them in their sin. Second, love others by apologizing and forgiving them eagerly and quickly. While we cannot love one another like Jesus did by dying for their sins, because we have sins of our own, we can love one another by living in light of the fact that Jesus did. One of the first ways to obey this new commandment is by putting on them, Colossians 3, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Put on, then, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Grace, we are all in the same sinking sin boat apart from the grace of God. And once we remember that God loved us apart from us deserving it, we are free to love others, even and especially when they don't deserve it. Third, finally. Love others by praying earnestly for them. Since the uniquely, fully, eternally satisfying glory of God is what others need more than anything else, loving them well means wanting more of that glory for them than anything else. But since God alone can bring more of that to them, we pray earnestly that he would. Therefore, we must pray for one another. This is going to come to us in John 17. In Jesus' own words, we must pray for one another. Loving one another means almost nothing if it does not mean specific, intentional, persistent prayer for them to know more of God. Jesus commanded his disciples to love each other as he loves them. Since they couldn't immediately follow them into his glory, this is what they were to give themselves to. And at least that meant loving to the end, apologizing and forgiving quickly, and praying earnestly. And the result of all of this, of course, verse 35, is that a lot of people will be loved well, and in that, the Father will be glorified. That is, if we are to obey Jesus' new commandment, the people of God will know the love of God in remarkable ways through each of us. And the world, through that, will see the power and glory of God. Can you imagine how much the church, our church even, would be built up if we were to truly love each other? like Jesus does, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I hope to help you see from this passage that the Father and Son would be glorified in the cross in awesome ways through the Son's departure so that he gave them a new commandment to guide them through these things. And above all, practically, let us give ourselves increasingly to seeing and savoring the glory of the Godhead to growing in a holy longing to follow Jesus in every way and to love others as we have been loved by him.